History has clearly shown that Christ is required to overcome the natural tendency of powerful forces to destroy God-given rights, including the right to hear and speak His truth. Welcome to Biblical Citizen, Let's Roll, with Kathleen and Brian Melanakis. Kathleen is an author and retired registered nurse, and her husband Brian is a former company president. Kathleen and Brian are here to discuss current events from a biblical worldview and how we as believers can be salt and light in our culture and in the political arena. Biblical Citizen Let's Roll seeks to educate and activate Christians at the grassroots level, helping them to live out their responsibility to influence civic affairs for good. Now, here are your hosts, Kathleen and Brian Melanakis on K-Praise. Greetings to all our listeners on this Thanksgiving weekend here in America. We hope all of you have been blessed by our national holiday that we've just celebrated. We hope you continue celebrating all that we have to be thankful for. What a blessing it is in itself that we as a nation set aside a day of feasting every year, specifically for the purpose of thanking God for our blessings. Gratitude is the key to happiness. We should constantly bring this to mind. This year, 2020, has been a hard year for many of us, but it is also a special year in in that it is the 400th anniversary of the founding of the first successful colony in America, Plymouth Plantation. Today we are going to recount some of the story of the pilgrims because it's always good to remember our history as a nation. This is our collective memory and who we are. I myself am proud to say I'm descended from William Brewster, one of the pastors who led the group of pilgrims to the New World. And I'm far from alone in this proud heritage. It is estimated that 10% of the American population, or about 35 million people, are also descended from the pilgrims who came over on the Mayflower. God brought about a marvelous work when he guided the pilgrims over to America, and they founded a colony on biblical principles. They came for religious freedom. They risked everything they had for it. Some of them lost their very lives. Others lived out the calling of God to suffer many hardships for the cause of freedom, but they also reaped the many rewards. Let's begin our story in England under James I, who came to the throne in 1603. Martin Luther had begun igniting the Protestant Reformation with his writings and sermons a century earlier. King Henry VIII of England had broken away from the Roman Catholic Church in 1534. But when James I came to the throne, He wanted uniformity in his realm under the Church of England. He viewed Puritans, who wanted to purify the Church of England of its Catholic elements, but especially Separatists, who wanted to break away from the Church of England altogether, as troublemakers, who needed to be, in his words, harried out of the realm or otherwise suppressed. Trouble was, if he planned to harry them out of the realm, he didn't provide any legal means for them to do that, to leave. It was illegal to meet together outside the state church, but illegal to leave as well. The man who became one of the main leaders of the pilgrims, William Bradford, was born into a well-established farming family in the county of York in northern England. However, by the time he was 12, he had lost his father, his mother, a sister, and the grandfather who raised him. He was sent to live with two of his uncles. Then he came down with an illness that prevented him from working in the fields. Lonely and intelligent, he spent his days reading the Bible and other great works of literature. Many said his deep readings and studies were to profoundly influence his whole life and ultimately the history of America. He began attending house church services at the Manor 
home of William Brewster. The mo- the, he was the postmaster in the nearby town of Scrooby. Brewster and Pastor John Robinson led a group of 50 or so followers that would meet together, read passages from the Bible, sing hymns, and then talk about their relationship to God and how to apply Scripture to their lives. These believers developed a bond of closeness that would last many years. But the Bishop of York found out about the Separatist House Church meetings and threatened jail. It was time to leave England, but how could they do it? Some of their members, including William Bradford, did go to jail for several months just for meeting in a house church. I got to say, I see parallels with today during this COVID time. There's so many pastors that are under threat of fines and in some cases even jail time for holding church services indoors or normally. Other believers have started holding house church, which also is against the guidelines of many of these autocratic governors. Yes, and no one thought that this could happen in America, where our founding fathers enshrined the First Amendment. But here it is. But back to the pilgrims. They secretly determined to go to Holland, where more religious freedom was allowed. They were able to escape, but their struggles were just beginning. William Bradford's was, was only 18 years old when the group of separatists settled in Leiden, Holland, a commercial town, quite unlike the farming communities of Osterfield and Scrooby from which they came. The few hundred English settlers built houses in Leiden and continued their meetings, but life was different in Holland under the Dutch culture. One major difference was that instead of the rhythms of farm life where hours were long only part of the year, tradespeople in Leiden were expected to work 12 hours a day, six days a week, all year round. And saving money was difficult with all the expenses they incurred. They worried about their children becoming Dutch. They cherished their English heritage and way of life and wanted to pass it down. They dreamed of starting a plantation in the new world where they could start life anew. But it was a crazy idea. How would they overcome the obstacles? They knew little about sailing, little about plantation building, and they knew little about the new world. But they felt God was calling them to do it. That they felt called by God was the guiding principle that sustained them to persevere in the years to come in the face of the many adversities that most of us can little imagine. Jail, bitter cold, hunger, sickness, disappointments, dissension among their ranks, betrayal by outsiders, threats from hostile natives, deaths of many of their group, and yet they would ultimately thrive. They began studying the matter of going to the new world and inquiring about ways they could acquire a ship and a patent. One person they considered hiring to be their guide was the famous John Smith of Pocahontas and Jamestown fame. They decided against hiring him, however, because they didn't want to take orders from such a strong personality who did not share their religious ideals. But they may have used some of his maps. They didn't have enough money to hire a ship or finance the expedition on their own. They needed investors. They contracted with a branch of the Virginia Company. This would be a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing to have the needed funds, but they met with the company representative, Thomas Weston, and he offered them what they considered a fair deal at first. He said that in the New World, the pilgrims could work for four days a week for the investors, two days for themselves, and rest on the Sabbath. 
and this would be a contract for seven years, and they would be able to share the profits accordingly. However, Weston changed the terms of the agreement right before they were to leave on the Mayflower. Now he said that instead they had to work all the time for the company for seven years and were not allowed to keep any profits. This was a cruel, dishonest trick. caused a lot of dissension among the members, but they had no choice at that point. By this time, it was too late to do much about it. Another hardship was that the Virginia Company investors insisted on some of their employees going along on the voyage. This meant that about half of the 102 passengers would be adventurers, people who did not share the pilgrims' religious ideals, but instead mocked them and in some cases treated them with contempt. Another difficulty was that the spiritual leader, William Brewster, he had to go into hiding from the English authorities about a year before their departure because he'd obtained a printing press and he published a pamphlet critical of the English government. So he was absent just when his leadership was needed, but other leaders forged ahead in his place. I see another parallel here to today. Right now, again, during this COVID time, there are powerful governments, there are powerful social media companies who want to control information. Why? Because if they control information, they can better control you. This is another principle that our founding fathers wanted to guard against and enshrined in our First Amendment. But the pilgrims, back to the story, determined to commission two ships. They would purchase a smaller one, a 50-footer of their own, and would keep it in the New World for fishing, exploring, and even to carry them back to England if needed. They bought a boat for this purpose, misnamed the Speedwell. While some of their party left to commission an additional larger ship in England, which ended up being the Mayflower, the master of the Speedwell was figuring out a way to swindle the pilgrims and enrich himself. The master or owner, Mr. Reynolds, sabotaged the speedwell by overmasting it, which means he made the mast too tall and which means it would start leaking. When the when the group sailed in September of sixteen twenty, sure enough, the boat began to leak. The leaders felt they had no choice but to bring it back the two hundred miles to England and give it up. Meanwhile, Mr. Reynolds acted like he didn't know the cause of the leak and proceeded to refit it and resell it at a profit, keeping the pilgrims' money. The loss of the speedwell meant that they would not only have to do without a boat in the New World, but they would arrive much later in the year than they had planned, when the weather was harsh. Yet the pilgrims were not deterred. The Mayflower was a big, sturdy ship, three times larger than the speedwell, and was fitted out with captain and crew and well-equipped for crossing the wide Atlantic. But it wasn't really meant for passengers. It was a merchant ship. That meant that the passengers had to carve out space for themselves on the mid-deck amongst barrels, equipment, and cargo. It was crowded and smelly, but they were to endure these conditions for two long months. We will take a short break now, but after that, we will talk more about the Pilgrim's Adventures in the New World and share some little-known facts about the first Thanksgiving. There is more Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Still to come on K-Praise. 
Welcome back to Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Now, here are your hosts, Kathleen and Brian Milanakis on K-Praise. We are recounting the story of the pilgrims and their voyage to America to establish an outpost of religious freedom in the New World exactly 400 years ago in 1620. There were miracles that happened during this period. One miracle that happened during the voyage, there was a young indentured servant named John Howland. He made an error in that he decided to come up to the upper deck of the ship during a terrible storm, but it was so smelly below deck, he had to get some air. A violent wind threw him overboard. He went 10 feet underwater in the icy water and would have surely died. But while he was underwater, he was somehow able to grasp hold of a rope and he was able to be pulled up with a boat hook by some of the sailors that noticed him go under. When William Bradford wrote about this incident more than a decade later, this same John Howland was not only still alive and well, but he and his wife were on their way to raising 10 children who in turn produced 88 grandchildren. Yes, this was a miracle, and the pilgrims always believed things happened for a reason. They were grateful for the good things that happened, and bad things happened too, and when these happened, sometimes they believed that they were to test them for a higher purpose. Besides the rescue of young John Howland, another miracle was that a new baby was born aboard the Mayflower. It was the child of Stephen and Elizabeth Hopkins, and they named him Oceanus. William and Susanna White would also become parents of the first child born in the New World, Peregrine White, shortly after the landing of the Mayflower. So they were at sea a total of two months, and they'd been blown way off course. Again, they were originally heading for Virginia, and they end up hundreds of miles north off the coast of Massachusetts, which, as you will see, was a mixed blessing. There was some good as well as bad with this change. So they saw land, and the date was November 9th, 1620. It was a Sunday. They landed on a barren shore called Provincetown Harbor. As William Bradford later wrote, they were joyful, but at the same time they couldn't help seeing that it was a desolate wilderness. So they spent the next month exploring around Cape Cod, where they determined to settle in what is now Plymouth, which is about 50 miles south of what is now Boston. And during this time, there were certain rabble-rousers and dissenters in the group that made complaining speeches, which reminded some others of the complainers that Moses had when he was trying to lead the Israelites to the Promised Land. They were saying, this isn't where we plan to go. It's desolate. It's cold. There's no food here. There's no beds. There's no comforts. But the pilgrim leaders knew that if both the separatists and the adventurers did not hang together as a group, they would never survive. So what did they do? Well, back to that first day, Sunday, November 9th. They spent that day praying, singing, and worshiping, as they always did on the Sabbath. And the next day, they drew up what is one of the founding documents of our country, the Mayflower Compact. It's right in there with the Magna Carta and the Declaration of Independence, and most importantly, it's considered to be a precursor to the United States Constitution. It's just one paragraph, and I'm going to take the liberty to read it to you because you probably never heard it. 
having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony into which we promise all due submission and obedience. Wow, that was just one paragraph, but there was a lot there was a lot in there. It was modeled after God's great covenant with his people in the Bible, and it rests on the principle of the consent of the governed. It's the opposite of tyranny, where the powerful few exploit the many who have no say in what happens in their lives. And unfortunately, tyranny has been more the rule than the exception as far as the course of human history. So anyway, the pilgrims established this compact right at the beginning. Then they spent the month exploring. And by the time they found the Plymouth site, it was December. It was really getting cold. Thankfully, the new site had forests so they could get wood. They could find ducks and geese and, yes, wild turkeys that they hunted for food. And they fished for mussels and clams in the ocean. They built a common house where they could nurse the sick and build fires to try to keep warm. And they were very grateful that they'd made it that far alive. Now, that first winter was really harsh, and sadly, nearly half of the pilgrims died during the course of that winter from either malnutrition, sickness, or just exposure to the elements. Another big challenge facing the pilgrims was building relationships with the Native Americans. They expected to meet a lot of Native Americans when they first landed, but they didn't see that many because... They didn't know, but a massive plague had killed thousands of them prior to the pilgrims' arrival. So they just saw a few, and one of those, miraculously, was a man named Squanto who spoke English. They couldn't believe this. Squanto spoke English because years earlier he'd been kidnapped and taken to England where he learned learned the English language. He saved some lives by showing them how to use fish as fertilizer when planting corn. They also established diplomatic relations with the chief, whose name was Massasoit, and they decided mutually to refrain from attacking each other, which is what had happened farther south in Virginia, and instead they established trade. And they sealed their relationship by presenting the chief with a copper chain, which he wore at all times around his neck. The first Thanksgiving took place 11 months after the settlers first arrived in America, probably in September or October. Those that had survived had gone through the terrible uh, deprivation of that winter, but they were able to build shelter and plant crops in the spring. That first fall, they harvested corn, squash, beans, barley, and peas, they were joyful of the, the, being able to harvest these crops, and the men went fowling and caught ducks, geese, and turkeys, yes, for the entire settlement. 
William Bradford declared a time of celebration. And what happened, Massasoit and 100 Pakenekets, his fellow Native Americans, arrived and celebrated with them. They brought five freshly killed deer. Fresh venison and poultry roasted on the wooden spits. The women made the meat and vegetables into simmering stews, and it was a great time of rejoicing for pilgrims, adventurers, and Native Americans alike. Another fact that I found interesting myself was that the first Thanksgiving coincided with with what was a new phenomenon for the pilgrims. Trees in New England, because of the different climate, turned vibrant colors in the fall. Reds, bright yellows, scarlet, rusts, orange, and purples. And Brian and I have been on a tour of New England during the fall colors, and it is awesome and amazing. The fall colors are much less dramatic back in old England. So this must have brightened their spirits that there was this amazing display of colors all around them. Another big lesson for today, for right now, that we can learn from the pilgrims is their experiment, which what it's what they called the common course or communal farming. Today, we might recognize this as a form of socialism. This was because the pilgrims had an agreement with the original investors, and so they were not supposed to divide up the land to different families and have private ownership. They were supposed to hold all the land in common and all eat out of the common stock. And it got so bad that they started again to starve. William Bradford wrote about this. He said that young men began slacking off working. They didn't like having to work for other families without compensation. The healthy men had to work hard, but they didn't like it that they got no more food than the weaker men who weren't working at all. And the wives really resented doing household chores for other families, and they said it was like slavery. So in order to literally avoid famine, in 1623, the pilgrims abandoned this common cause. The governor said that he gave, we gave way so that they could set corn every man for his own particular, and in that regard, trust to themselves in all other things to go on in the general way as before. And so we assigned to every family a parcel of land. So all of a sudden, the colonists all of a sudden had to grow their own food, and they suddenly became very industrious. Women and children who said they were too too weak to go out in the fields to plant corn suddenly went out in the fields to plant corn. And that very first year, 1623, the corn harvest was three times the amount of the previous year under the communal farming system. So... All you folks out there that think that socialism is a new idea or something that we ought to try, one thing you can uh, incorporate into your ideas is you may have to cut your food supply by about two-thirds. So as we celebrate this season of the year with Thanksgiving in our hearts and looking towards Christmas, let's try to remember what our pilgrim forefathers and the sacrifices they made for future generations under God's direction And you know, I didn't know this, but there's now a recreated pilgrim village back there in Plymouth, right right in Plymouth Harbor. You can visit it and see what life was like in the 17th century. And in addition, they're now building an an exact replica of the Mayflower that people will actually be able to ride on in the harbor. This seems to me, that'd be a great way to teach your children about our heritage 
and pass on our legacy to the next generation, the legacy of freedom. A couple other things I recommend that a great read is the words of William Bradford himself. He wrote a book about this whole experience called Plymouth Plantation. And a second book I recommend is a book by Nathaniel Philbrick. It's called The Mayflower, A Story of Courage, Community, and War, available on Amazon or through other booksellers. To bless your neighbor this week, actively keep the spirit of thanksgiving in your heart. Share your gratitude with your neighbors. Thank God every day for food, clothing, shelter, loved ones, and the blessings of America. Pray that religious freedom will be protected in our land and will be passed down to another generation. Love God and your neighbor with all your heart and remember the pilgrims and their brave endeavor to do the same. Thanks for joining us for Biblical Citizen. Let's roll. Join us next week at this same time as Kathleen Melanakis, author and retired registered nurse, and her husband, Brian Melanakis, former company president, explore the deeper issues and spiritual forces behind the news and how we as believers can be salt and light in our culture and in the political arena. Biblical Citizen Let's Roll seeks to educate and activate Christians at the grassroots level, helping them to live out their responsibilities to influence civic affairs for good. Next week, we will cover more major news happening from the view of the biblical citizen. To learn more about the show, how to become a guest or sponsor, send an email to biblicalcitizen at gmail.com. That's biblicalcitizen at gmail.com. This has been Biblical Citizen. Let's roll on Gay Praise.